Father in heaven, as we tread on sacred ground together this morning, we pray that you would be our guide. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to impress our hearts with just the special message that you want us to take home today. Father, may we see Jesus more clearly and may we fall more deeply in love with you this morning, we ask. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In Luke, the 23rd chapter, the 33rd verse, Luke pens, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. Four words that are pregnant with meaning. There they crucified him. Four words that are worthy of the most intense contemplation Four words that are worthy of you thinking heavily on throughout this next week. There, they crucified him. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, our theme Bible passage in this series, we are told about those who follow Christ in the last days, and it says, these are they which follow the Lamb. Whithersoever he goeth, there they crucified him. Are we willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes? Are we willing to follow him to the cross? Are we willing to follow him even if it means for us to be hung on that cross? There they crucified him. They follow the lamb whithersoever. He goeth. Jesus told his disciples, and he speaks to you and me this morning in Matthew, the 16th chapter, in the 24th verse, then Jesus saying unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does Jesus say those that follow him carry? It shouldn't surprise us that we have crosses to bear. But for some reason, it always does. Jesus says that those who choose to follow him, that those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, that they will be cross bearers. I don't know what the cross is going to be that the Lord is going to choose for you to carry. It might be a physical cross one day. It might be something else. But it ought not to surprise you when it comes. Jesus says that those who follow him will carry a cross. You and I are going to Calvary in just a little while. We will travel over a similar road that Jesus traveled down. The scenes of the cross, we've been told, will be resurrected, will be revived. We will have a very similar experience that Jesus had in the last 48 hours of his life. Those who choose to follow the lamb wherever he goes, those who choose to be cross bearers, 
will not be people who look for the easy way. Neither will they be people who are prone to complaining, asking for suffering to be relieved, asking for something to be changed so that they might be more comfortable. No, they will follow right behind the Lamb because he is their sole goal in their life to be with him. You know, when you are asked to do something that you've never done before, you will oftentimes seek out a person who has done that already. And you, you seek that person out because you want to get advice from their experience. You want to, in a sense, you want to follow their example because they've gone through it before you. And Jesus has tread this road. He has carried the cross. He has gone through what we are about to go through. And he is there to give us advice. He is there to give us counsel. He's there to be an example. And he is there to see that we succeed. There, they crucified him. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. I will be honest with you this morning, as I came to this presentation, I almost didn't want to preach it for fear that I would botch it up. The cross is such a broad theme. It is so deep and touching to my heart that words fail me sometimes when I try to express what the Lord has done for me as I've studied this particular scene in Scripture But I will do my best, although as I wrote it, I felt like I could preach three parts on just the cross. We'll focus on one thing this morning, and I pray that throughout this next week that you would take the time to focus on the four scenes in the Gospels on this particular story, that you would get out your desire of ages and read those two chapters on Calvary and it is finished, and let it nourish your soul again as you look at what Jesus has done for you. The narrative changes now. We go from Jesus being tried to Jesus being crucified. He has gone through the six trials that were a farce of a trial, three religious trials that the verdict was guilty, the three civil trials the verdict was innocent, yet they still crucified him. I didn't talk much about the scourging that Jesus received, the second scourging after Pilate gave him over to be crucified. But now Jesus is being led to the place of execution. His back lacerated from being scourged, his body bruised and bleeding. He has gone for uh, a whole night without sleep. He has not eaten. He has not drunk anything. He has been physically abused and emotionally traumatized. And now he stands. The visage of his face has changed. It is almost difficult to recognize that it is even a human being. They take the cross of Calvary, and according to Roman accounts, the cross that these criminals bore was just the top section of what we traditionally think of a cross. And it was bound to the arms of the criminal, and he would carry it to the place of execution. Some estimate that the cross-section that the criminal bore weighed somewhere around 100 pounds or so. Jesus, in in a good time, was a very physically fit individual. He was a carpenter. He walked around. He was not a weak individual. But things had changed since that time. Now, weakened by what had taken place, 
Scripture tells us that he buckles beneath that hundred pounds that was placed upon his shoulders. And with his arms being bound to that, that stick on, on his back, can you imagine what it was like to fall having your arms bound to a stick behind you? No arms, no hands to catch yourself. You just fall straight on the ground and hope that your face is preserved. He struggles to get back up again, and he falls for the second time, and his executors realize that there is no way under this condition that Jesus is going to be able to carry the cross to Calvary. And so they look this way and they look that way. Who is it that's going to take the cross? Of course, the Jews didn't want to carry the cross. They knew that if they touched it, that they would be unclean and wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover. So they weren't going to do it in their high and holy estate. The Romans didn't want to have anything to do with it. That was the criminal's job. And just as this awkward situation was playing out and Jesus was laying there face down on the ground, groaning in pain, there was a man who came around the corner, Simon of Cyrene we know him as. And as he heard the throb of the angry mob crying out for the death of the Son of God, as he came around the corner and he seen this, this human being that had been so physically abused, there was a pain of sympathy that rose up in Simon's heart, and that pain of sympathy expressed itself in his face. And when the Roman guards saw that sympathy in the face of Simon, Simon was not a disciple. He was not a follower of Jesus. He had heard about him. His sons were followers of Jesus, but he hadn't quite accepted him yet. There his Redeemer lays on the ground, bound to a stick, Roman guards grab Simon, they take the load off of Jesus' back, and they place it on his. And they make him carry that cross all the way to Calvary. As Simon looked back on that experience, what appeared to be a humiliating experience for an individual, as Simon looked back on that time when he carried the cross of his Savior, it was a time of rejoicing in his life. He was thankful that he was able to carry the cross of his Savior. He was thankful and grateful for that burden that he could carry for Jesus. I think when the Lord decides to place a cross on your shoulder, we ought to follow the example of Simon. Thankful that we can bear a cross for Jesus. What intended to be a humiliating experience was actually an experience of great strength for Simon. As they get to the place of execution, Jesus lays down upon the cross without a struggle. This was uncommon. Many times the criminals would struggle one last attempt to try to keep themselves from being crucified. That wasn't the case with Jesus. He laid down very calmly as a lamb led to the slaughter. And as the Roman guards took the spikes in their hand and the hammer in the other and drove those nails through the wrist of Jesus, anatomically the wrist is considered part of the hand. I'm sure Jesus groaned in pain as that metal object went through his wrists and through his feet. And then he was lifted, hung between heaven and earth, rejected by man and seemingly rejected by God. 
And now as he is out of the physical reach of the religious leaders to physically harm him, hanging on a tree, the verbal abuse begins to pour out. They say, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Roman soldiers, the Bible tells us, they mocked him. The rulers also, the Bible says, derided him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he be Christ the chosen one. And so the verbal abuse continues. I don't think we have any way of really understanding what it's like to know what it was like for what Jesus went through. We have never suffered in such a way. God never called us to suffer the way Jesus suffered. He didn't call us to save lost humanity. Any trial that you and I go through in comparison to what Jesus went through is nothing. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 15, in fact, if you would turn there with me, Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. 33 and 34, Mark's account says this, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours, there was darkness. And verse 34 says, And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The word forsaken means to be left helpless, totally abandoned and deserted. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the heart-wrenching cry of a son who feels totally abandoned by his father. You see, it's one thing for a child to be lost. It's another thing for a child to be abandoned. If a child is lost, he has hope that his father is out there looking for him. He has hope that his parents and his loved ones are searching diligently to try to find that lost child. But when a child is abandoned, that child knows that its parent has turned their back on them never to come back again. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus feels abandoned by his heavenly Father as he hangs there on the cross looking down upon those people who are cruelly treating him and speaking to him. This is what Jesus felt as he hung on the cross. But it's interesting, the words that Jesus uttered here, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They weren't something that he just made up in his mind. It's actually something that David wrote as we read in our call to worship this morning in Psalms chapter 22. Almost in a prophetic sense, David writes the words that Jesus would utter as he hangs on the cross. And Jesus being a good Jew, as he grew up, you know, the Jewish kids, they would commit large portions of scripture to memory. And doubtless Jesus had committed the 22nd chapter of Psalms to memory. And you know how it is when you've memorized something, uh, the first part of it, it triggers the rest of it. And so it's almost like what we find is that in Psalms 22, we get a peek into the mind of Christ of what he was thinking as he hung on the cross. He utters the words, why have thou forsaken me? And it's almost like the rest of the chapter of Psalms 22 continues to play out in his mind. 
He thinks about verse 11 where it says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. He thinks of verse 19 that says, But uh, be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, hast thee, hasten thee to help me. He thinks of verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword. He thinks of verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth. Indeed, Jesus felt like he was abandoned by his heavenly father. We have never experienced anything like this. In the book Desire of Ages, page 753, it says this, the Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. You've probably read this before. He did not, hope did not, sorry, hope did not present itself. Sorry, hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. Listen to what she goes on to say. He feared. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be what? The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. In his mind, this separation between him and his Father would be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. He felt that feeling that the wicked people will feel after the 1,000 years when they finally realize there's nothing left for them. There's no hope of salvation. All they have to look forward to is destruction. That's the feeling that Jesus felt. As far as he was concerned in his mind, this was it. There was no reunion together with his father in his mind. There was no resurrection from the dead in his mind. He could not see through the portals of the tomb, but he was glad to do it so that you could be in the heaven, kingdom of heaven one day. When the events of Revelation 13 and 16 begin to be unfolded, unfold do you think we might be tempted to feel abandoned? When the mark of the beast is being enforced and those who do not receive it will, re, will, be, will receive the death threat or ultimately the death penalty, do you think you're going to feel like maybe you have been abandoned? Do you think when the seven last plagues are being poured out and it seems like God has turned his back on this world as a whole, do you th think that you are going to feel abandoned? You better believe it. It will feel as though God has turned his back on us. But God's children, men and women of great faith, will no, not go by their feelings, but they will follow the example of Jesus and live by faith. I want you to read a passage real quick with me again. We read it already, but I want to read it one more time. Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. And I want you to notice again what the Bible says. It says this, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours, there was darkness that had descended over the whole land. Let me ask you a question. When you feel abandoned, rejected, and depressed, how does darkness make you feel? It intensifies those feelings that you're going through. And it's almost like the sun 
is turning its face away. It's almost like the sun cannot shine its light upon the redeemer of the world, the crea- its own creator being crucified and being put to death. Darkness descends upon the earth. Jesus is enshrouded in darkness. All that time leading up to this, men and women were able to watch as Jesus went through the physical suffering that he went through. But now darkness is eclipsing him from his persecutors. And I'm sure there's a temptation to feel like the depression would get worse But I want you to listen to this passage here in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 21. The Bible says this, And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick, what? Drew unto the thick darkness, where what? Somebody ought to say amen to that. Where was God? That darkness that descended upon Jesus, he felt, I'm sure, that this was just a confirmation that he had been rejected by his father. But the Bible tells us that God is in the darkness. In fact, listen to what Desire of Ages says. Desire of Ages, page 753, it says this, God and his holy angels were beside the cross. The father was with his son, yet his presence was not revealed. It's almost as if God was giving his son a hug as he hung on the cross. He was surrounding him. It was like he was veiling him in that final moment of his suffering so that those piercing eyes of his persecutors could not see him any longer as he suffered and drank that final dreg of that cup and trod trod the wine press alone. I submit to you this morning that Jesus couldn't have been any closer to his father than he was at that point. Are we going to go through times of darkness? When we go through that crisis at the close, are there going to be times of darkness? You better believe it. Do we go through times of darkness right now? Do we go through those periods of depression and trial and difficulty where we just feel like everything is going against us and working against us? We need to remember that God is in the darkness. He is close to his children when they go through those times. He is holding them up. I bet you that God, or I I can almost guarantee that God wanted to come to Jesus' rescue to encourage him and let him know that what he was doing was right, but he had to stand back as the Heavenly Father because this was what Jesus had to do alone. What he came to the world for, but he surrounded him. There on Calvary's cross. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. The Bible says that, talking about God, he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Amen? Oh, man, that's, that's the same word that Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's the same Hebrew word. It means that I will never leave thee or abandon thee. Does God abandon us? He doesn't. He says, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will stick with you all the way through. And in fact, I'll even save you if you'll let me. These are promises that we need to keep stuck in our minds. 
Because when those dark hours come, the feelings are going to be tempting us to let go of our hold on God, but faith must kick in at that time. And remember the promises of God, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. As Jesus continues to hang on the cross there, as the darkness envelops him and, and, and shields him from those that are there, his mind continues to go through Psalms 22. And perhaps he thinks about this verse here in Psalms 22 and verse 24 where it says, For he hath not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but... When he cried unto him, what does it say? Amen. Can you imagine how encouraging this must have been for Jesus to think about this Bible verse? I can't prove that he did, but I'd like to think he did. As he goes through Psalms 22 in his mind, I know for sure that Jesus walked by faith at that time. And I would like to think that he is calling back the promises of God in his mind to help encourage him at this time. When he cried unto him, he heard. You know, it's interesting. Right after Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, the Bible says this. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, you know what he says, into thy hands I commend or entrust my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost, or he breathed his last breath. You know, even in Jesus' final words, he was quoting Scripture. He was quoting from Psalms 31 and verse 5 when he says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. What was Jesus thinking about when he hung on the cross? He was thinking about the Word of God. In that darkest hour of his life, the things that were coming out of his mouth was Scripture. And brothers and sisters, we would do well now, as uh, we live in this time of peace and prosperity, we would do well now to be committing these passages into our mind, to be committing the promises of God. And I know some of us just sit there and say, oh, the pastor's spouting off again about memorizing God's word. We need to do it. Jesus had the word of God in his mind. There was no way for him to turn from page to page. There was no way for him to go to the temple and read the temple copy of the scroll of the word of God. He had to have it in his mind. And in that dark, depressing hour, as he's heaving his last few breaths, he uses them to quote scripture. For there he found strength to sustain him in that dark hour. Listen to this, Desire of Ages, page 756. She says this, In those dreadful hours he, Jesus, had relied upon the evidence of his Father's acceptance hitherto given him. What did he rely on? He relied on the evidence of his Father's acceptance. She says this, By faith, by what? By faith he rested in him who it has ever been his joy to obey. By faith, by what? Christ was, how did he become victorious? By, by faith. By faith, she says, he was victor. 
you know, I asked the question, what were the evidences that Jesus relied upon? What were those moments in his life, in his earthly ministry, that sustained him and gave him strength as he was going through that dark hour? There were three times in Jesus' earthly ministry that the Father gave him his approval. As Jesus went to the uh, baptismal fount and was baptized, he said, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, again, there was that voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. As Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, we studied this, the angel Gabriel came down as he was sweating great drops of blood, praying, not my will but thine be done. The angel comes down and puts his angelic arm around Jesus and says, listen, the Father is accepting your sacrifice. He is accepting you. You have his approval. What did she say? In those dreadful hours, Jesus relied upon the evidences of his father's acceptance hitherto forgiven him. So I ask you the question, what evidences do you have in your life of the father's acceptance of you? Now, don't get all downcast and say, oh, the father doesn't accept me. That's hogwash. It is the devil whispering a lie in your ear. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world. He accepts you. He loves you. He is willing to accept you, and he is willing to give you evidence of his accepting. But the question is, are you going to remember it? Because as human beings, we are so prone to forget the good and focus on the bad. Am I preaching you the truth, yes or no? We're so happy when the good things happen, but then the dark times take place and we completely forget about all the good things. We completely forget about the evidences of God's approval in our lives. When he has accepted us, when he has shown us how much he loves us, we completely forget about those things. But that wasn't the case in the life of Jesus. He thought about those three times when the Father gave him his approval. And as he hung in that dark hour, separated from his Father, the weight of the sin of the world crushing out his very life, he called back into his memory that voice he heard when he was baptized. He called back into his memory that glorification there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He remembered that feeling of that embrace from that angelic angel telling him that what he was doing was the right thing. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember those times when God gives us evidences of his approval. We need to write them down. We need to remember them. We need to think about them. We need to talk about them. We need to tell other people about them. They need to be fresh in our minds so that when those dark hours come, we will call them back and they will be an encouragement to us. This is why I believe Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter 11 and verse 22, Jesus answering, saith unto them, have faith in God. Have what? Have faith. Have faith in God. It's no different for us today than it was for Jesus in his crisis hour. It's interesting to me. Paul tells us how God's people will live in the last days. And in fact, he repeats it three times in his writings. You've read it before. You'll remember it as soon as I mention it. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul says, as it is written, the just, go ahead and finish it for me. How will they live? 
Three times he says it. He's just quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The just shall live by faith. He says it three times. How will God's people live? They won't live by feeling, but they will live by faith. Why will they live by faith? Because that's how Jesus lived his life. And they will follow him as their example. They will walk as he walked. They will talk as he talked. And they will even allow their feelings to be, be checked by faith like Jesus allowed his feelings to be checked by faith. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. It's a passage we're very familiar with. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Of course, we've looked at verse 4 many times, and then you have the three angels' message beginning in verse 6. We have the third angel in verses 9, 10, and 11 talking about the mark of the beast and all of the stuff that's going to happen. Verse 12 is the last description in Revelation chapter 14 before the second coming of Christ. Verse 14 is where we find him coming back, sitting on a white cloud and all of that. This is the last description of God's people. Verse 12, it says this, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the what? God's people right before Jesus comes back are described this way. They are described as people of patience who keep God's commandments and who have the faith of Jesus. Why? Was Jesus patient? Of course he was. Did Jesus keep the commandments? Sure he did. Did Jesus have great faith? Absolutely. The Bible is describing to us a group of people that looks like Jesus. That's what it's doing here. It's the last description. And the Bible says that they have the faith of Jesus. What does the faith of Jesus look look like? Look no further than the cross of Calvary, and there you will see a beautiful example of Jesus' faith. Of course, before we can keep something, you first have to what? You have first have to what? Before you can keep something, you have to first get it. And the Bible says that they keep the faith of Jesus. That means that they have it. Where did Jesus get his faith? Did he get it as he was hanging on the cross? No, he didn't. He got it in Nazareth. He got it in, uh, in Capernaum. He got it in Judea. He got it in Berea. He got it in all of these different places as he traveled around following his father's bidding in his life. That's where Jesus developed his great faith that sustained him under that crushing load in those last few hours of his life. We don't gain great faith in the time of persecution. That faith needs to be gained ahead of time so that when the persecution comes, it can stand. Now, lest any of you think that you don't have any faith, let me tell you this. My Bible says, and I think if you looked it up in your Bible, it would say the same thing. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul says, For God hath dealt to every man a measure of, don't tell me you don't have faith. Because my Bible tells me that you have faith. The question is, are you exercising it? You see, Jesus exercises faith. Faith is like our physical muscles. The more you exercise them, the bigger they get and the stronger they become. God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. And we know it doesn't take much faith to do great things. Even weak faith is greater than no faith at all. The Bible tells us that God has given to every man a measure of faith. And the question is, are we exercising that 
faith. Why is it important for us to think about this? Listen to what the Bible says. First John chapter 5 and verse 4, uh, the Bible says this, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our what? We know all this stuff. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm, all, most of these passages you, you've got already stuck inside of your mind. You have memorized them because you've heard them so often. But the question is, what are we doing about what we know? Is what we know impacting how we live? It was the faith of Jesus that was victorious on the cross, and it's the faith of the saints that will be, allow them to be overcomers. Jesus' experience will be our experience as we go through the crisis at the close. So let me ask you a question. Does complaining help you build faith? Does dwelling on your difficulties help you to have greater faith? Is it faith building to depend upon others for your spiritual experience, yes or no? Why do we do these things then? You know, if we could remove these three things that I've just mentioned out of our church and out of our spiritual life, we would have a great spiritual experience. Trials, difficulties, depending upon others. If we could just remove those three things right out, our spiritual experience would improve a hundredfold. We know that these things don't increase our faith. Why do we spend so much time thinking about them? See, we know these things, but the question is, is what we know impacting how I live? How much time do we spend talking about trials and difficulty? How much time do you spend thinking about those trials and difficulty? You know, when we talk about trials and difficulty this much, that means that we've been thinking about it this much. Am I not preaching the truth this morning? Because what you say is what you've been thinking about. And if we spend so much time talking about it, our eyes are looking down here instead of looking up there. And looking down here does not offer any hope, but looking up here does. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Again, these are passages that you know. That's why I'm just quoting them. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus... The what? Author and the finisher of your, what is he? He's the, and the, he's the beginner and the, and he sustains everything in between. Don't try to do it on your own, right? He he says, listen, I'll author it and I'll keep it and I'll finish it. I'll do everything for you. You just have to be willing to let me do it. Stop fighting with me. Stop, you know, giving it to me and then taking it back and giving it to me and taking it back giving it. Just let me take care of it because I'll do a better job at sustaining your faith than you will. So how do we get great faith? Looking unto. Not looking down here, but looking up. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, the Bible says, so then faith cometh by and hearing by the. We know these, we know these passages, right? Where does faith come from? It comes from hearing the word of God. So Jesus is the author. He is the sustainer. He is the finisher. And as we study his word and meditate upon it, those two things put together will strengthen our faith. Because every man's been given a measure of it. We just need to strengthen it. So in closing, I want to share with you something here. Great Controversy, page 621, says this. The season of distress and anguish 
before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger. A faith that will not faint, though what? What do we need? What is it? We need faith. Does Jesus tell you to go out and try to find it on your own? No. He says, you need this later on. Let me give it to you. Let me strengthen it for you. Let me do this for you so that when that time comes, you'll be able to stand strong under the pressure of the crisis at the close. The faith that is being talked about here is the faith that we find that Job had in Job chapter 13 and verse 15. He said, though he slay me, yet will I. Don't you want to have that kind of faith? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The faith of Jesus will be the faith of his people. The Bible says that they keep the faith of Jesus. How are we doing with our faith? What we've been looking at in our study together is how can I be successful in the crisis at the close? How is Jesus successful in the crisis in his life? And how can I take what he did and do it myself? But we need to let him give us the faith of Jesus. Listen, friends. It is not because the world isn't wicked enough that Jesus hasn't come. It's not because Bible prophecy hasn't been fulfilled that Jesus has not come. Bible prophecy can be fulfilled very quickly. But for some reason, as Seventh-day Adventists, we've kind of gotten twisted up in our minds as we think about there's all these things that need to happen before Christ can come back. Yes, there is all kinds of things that need to, be ha- that need to happen. The gospel needs to go to the world, all these kinds of things. God can do that very quickly. He turned the whole world upside down in one generation in the book of Acts. He can do it now as well. Friends, what Christ is waiting for and what the Father is waiting for, you know what I'm going to say. He's waiting for people who have the Revelation 14.4 experience. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. He's waiting for a group of people who have the Revelation 14 and verse 12 experience. They are patient, they are commandment-keeping, and they have the faith of Jesus. Because they're not safe to save until they have that experience. He's not telling you to go out and do it on your own. He's telling you, I'll do it for you. And I know the temptation is to look at this type of thing and say, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can have that type of experience, and there's no way that I can be sustained in such a great trial. You're right. There is no reason that you can do that. But don't be discouraged by that thought that you can't, because greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. God can do it for you. In fact, he wants to do it for you. He wants you to be successful. He has paved the way to the kingdom of heaven with the blood of his son. You are precious in his sight. So I ask you this morning, how's your faith? In a sense, brothers and sisters, we hold the key in our hands. We're not waiting for missionaries, although we need more of them. We hold the key in our hands. It's what you do throughout the day tomorrow. It's what you do in the morning tomorrow. It's what you do day after day throughout this next week. It's the way you treat your brother and sister. The way you treat your family. It's those little things. 
that tweak our character to become more like Jesus that will bring his coming sooner. I don't know about you, but this morning as I've gone through this and I've studied it, I think, Lord, I need you to do a miracle in my life because I'm just not going to be able to do it on my own. I need the faith of Jesus. As this crisis hour comes upon me, I need the faith of Jesus. Is that what you want? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.